but that by the convincing power of the blessed Spirit of God, may the proclamation and the reception of your holy word be greatly clothed with power from on high, effectually delivered, effectually received, in obedience to you, Lord. To our comfort as your people, and to the conviction of greater sanctification that we need to grow evermore in the likeness of our Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name and for his sake, we ask these things. Amen and amen. I do invite you to take God's word and let's open up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, where this morning we are going to consider a question that just ties directly in, not by my plans, um, but ties directly into the expository read that we just had from Psalm 44. The question I'm raising today is, why persecution? Why persecution? And as I just said, this, this sermon, this exposition, that I had to wonder prayerfully this morning, hmm, so a double message this morning on persecution, hmm, what's coming? What are we being prepared for that we need to hear twice? Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so reads the infallible, inerrant, certain word of the living, eternal God. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 16, the Apostle Paul, or excuse me, the Apostle Peter wrote words of both comfort and cheer to a myriad of fellow Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire whom he knew were facing the inevitable onslaught of persecution and suffering. Peter exhorted them with these words. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 
But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. What I find so strikingly practical and relevant about these divinely inspired words of the Apostle Peter is that he knows what will be the first and most common response Christians will have to persecution. They will be surprised. They will think of this suffering as something strange happening to them. These terms Peter uses translated as surprised or something strange both come from the same root in the Greek. It is a term that means to be surprised or astonished at the novelty of something. What Peter therefore was saying in effect to his readers was this, look, I don't want you to think that because you may be suffering as a Christian that this is unusual or foreign to what is expected in the Christian life. If people revile you because you're a Christian, don't be shocked by this. Don't be alarmed. Do not, do not think to yourself, but wait a minute. I am a Christian. This shouldn't be happening to me. Oh no, my friend. It is because you are a Christian that you will suffer and be persecuted by the world. The great principal truth of Peter's words to the church in his day, as well as in our own, is that every Christian needs to realize since the gospel of Christ and a life conformed to that gospel will be offensive to the world, it will therefore produce persecution for the church. To say this another way, Faithfulness to Jesus Christ and to the spread of his gospel will bring animosity from unbelievers. It is a given. It is a given. This is why Peter says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. As though something were happening to you, something strange. Persecution on account of Christ and his saving gospel is the mark of every true and obedient believer in Jesus Christ. Now, having this truth in our perspective, I want to draw your attention this morning to Matthew chapter 5, 10 through 12. This passage of scripture records what is the last beatitude which Jesus reveals as true of his followers, but with the focus fixed more on how the world reacts to the believer in Christ. In other words, now think through this, okay? When the world is confronted by a Christian who is humbled and broken over his own sin, giving himself completely over to God's will for his life, craving for righteousness, merciful to others, devoted to Christ with single-hearted obedience and pursuing to make peace with others in God's way. When the world comes face to face with someone like this, they do not applaud such a person. They persecute him. And this is the climactic characteristic which Jesus reveals will be the norm for all his followers. The faithful Christian will be the persecuted Christian. 
Concerning this fact, within the context of the entire Sermon on the Mount, one writer made these very wise observations. He said, the Lord's opening thrust in the Sermon on the Mount climaxes with this great and sobering truth. Those who faithfully live according to the first seven Beatitudes are guaranteed at some point to experience the eighth. Those who live righteously will inevitably be persecuted for it. Godliness generates hostility and antagonism from the world. The crowning feature of the blessed person is persecution. Kingdom people are rejected people. Holy people are singularly blessed, but they pay a price for it. So then the humility... The godly sorrow, the the meekness and hunger for righteousness, the mercifulness, the purity of heart and the pursuit of peace, which all demonstrate the new nature and life of every authentic Christian, these characteristics will not garner popularity from the world, but persecution. Thus our Lord Jesus sobers his people to what they must that what they must expect. You understand? What they must expect for their faithfulness to him as it is lived out in the world. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, from this passage, I want us to consider this morning three principles surrounding Christian persecution. First, the reality of persecution. Second, the reason for persecution, and then third, the response to persecution. To begin with then, let's notice first, the reality of persecution. Our Lord declared, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. As I've already established in the introduction of our study, persecution from the world, is the inevitable result of living the Christian life. The inevitable result. And frankly, it is the chief result. Which is why our Lord couches the reality of persecution as among the most fundamental marks of the Christian himself. So then, next to the humility and meekness and peacemaking that we should expect to see in anyone who professes to be a Christian, a believer in Christ, we should also expect to see the world harassing the Christian as well. This is why, for instance, Jesus spoke often to his disciples about persecution as a reality they would, a reality that would follow them as they followed Christ. Thus, in Matthew chapter 10, 16-25, as Jesus prepared his disciples for their very first missionary journey, he warned them that he was sending them out, listen to this, he was sending them out as sheep in the midst of wolves. As sheep in the midst of wolves. Hence, they were to, as Jesus says, they were to beware of men. 
Why? Because our Lord says that his disciples would find themselves persecuted by religious people. Persecuted by governmental authorities. Persecuted even by their own family members. Who, Christ says, would seek to kill them because of their witness for Christ. Also in John chapter 15, 18 through 21, in the very last sermon Jesus gave his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion, he again returned to this sobering reality of persecution. He proclaimed, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. So for Christ, for our Lord, he did not want either his first disciples nor the rest of his church in future generations to be confounded or startled when they discover when they when they've discovered themselves on the receiving end of persecution. This will come upon you, dear Christian. Okay, it's coming. This will be your lot in life, as it were, since you belong to Christ and not to the world. Do therefore to this impending reality, notice that Jesus does not say here in verse 11 of the text, of our text, he does not say, blessed are you if others revile you. No, he doesn't say that. But instead it is, blessed are you when, when others revile you. Are you catching that? It's n Listen, it's when, it's not if. It's when, it's not if. And, and this word translated when, that carries the idea of whenever. Whenever. The point to be clarified by this term is to stress that a Christian will not always, they'll, they'll not always find themselves under attack by the world, but whenever the attacks do come, a Christian should not be alarmed. Musing on this fact from the context of the Beatitudes, John R. W. Stott wrote the following. He said, since all the Beatitudes describe what every Christian disciple is intended to be, we conclude that the condition of being despised and rejected, slandered and persecuted, is as much a normal mark of Christian discipleship as being pure in heart or merciful. Every Christian is to be a peacemaker and every Christian is to expect opposition. Those who hunger for righteousness will suffer for the righteousness they crave. It has been so in every age. We should not be surprised if anti-Christian hostility increases, but rather surprised if it does not. Hmm. 
So, despite how much the world today, in its great message of tolerance, may assume that it will welcome Christians with open arms, the truth is such presumption is quickly dispelled once the world actually meets a real Christian. Notice I said real. This is why the Apostle Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12, and by the way, this is a promise of God, a promise that interestingly certain false teachers never seem to name and claim. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12, here's a promise of God for all of us. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Will be. Will be. That's a promise. Guaranteed. Not from man, but from God. It's coming, Christian. It's coming. You desire to live a godly life? Somebody isn't going to like it. But when the world carries out its persecution against the believer in Christ, what exactly does the world do? Now that's what I want us to deal with here. When the reality of persecution sets in on any of us as Christians, what form may it take? Well, here in verse 11, Jesus specifies three types of persecution that all his people may at some point in time have to endure. First, there are verbal insults. There are verbal insults. Blessed are you when others revile you. The verb translated revile comes from a Greek term that literally means to cast in one's teeth. It carries the idea of heaping insult after insult upon someone for the purpose of reproaching them. One writer noted that to revile is to throw abusive words in the face of an opponent to mock viciously. Now, there was certainly no one who has withstood this kind of persecution more severely than Jesus himself. When our Lord was on trial in that kangaroo court of the Sanhedrin, he was viciously reviled as they blindfolded him, spitting in his face and beating him repeatedly with their fists. They reviled him with these kinds of taunting words. Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is the one who hit you? And then, of course, when Jesus was turned over to the Roman soldiers, the reviling continued as they put a scarlet robe on him and thrust a crown of thorns on his head and and placed a reed in his right hand. Then they, they bowed before him and they mocked him. They mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And following the same train of abuse, He received at the hands of the Sanhedrin, the Roman soldiers spat upon Jesus and beat him with the reed. However, the apex of reviling, which Jesus endured, was while he was nailed to the cross. 
The scriptures tell us in Matthew chapter 27, verses 39 through 44, that the people derided Christ with vicious mocking, saying to him, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Others scorned Jesus with words of vile derision. He saved others. He cannot save himself. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And on and on it went. Now, beloved, for those of us who belong to Christ, we too will suffer. Such treatment as did our Lord because we are identified with him. We too will be reviled. Remember that according to our text, it's not a matter of if but when. It's not a matter of if but when. Hence there will be those occasions when the scorn of the world will come crashing down upon us with cutting verbal insults due to our love and obedience to Christ. We will be mocked as narrow-minded, bigoted, Bible thumper, judgmental, unloving, holier than thou, arrogant, or just plain stupid for believing this thing called the gospel. This is how the world will react to those who truly follow Christ. The world will revile us. But not only will there be verbal insults, the second form of persecution is what we can call physical abuse. Physical abuse. Looking again at verse 11, Jesus declares, Blessed are you when others persecute you. This word translated persecute comes from a Greek verb which has the basic meaning of chasing, driving away, or pursuing. And from this idea is derived the concept of physical persecutions, harassment, and an all-out unjust treatment. John MacArthur noted about this word that here in this text it is used in the passive, the passive perfect participle and could be translated allow themselves to be persecuted. He then went on to explain that the perfect form indicates continuousness, in this case a continuous willingness to endure persecution if it is the price of godly living. It is the lack of fear and shame and the presence of courage and boldness that says I will be in this world what Christ would have me be. I will say in this world what Christ will have me say. Whatever it costs, I will be and say those things. And here our Lord is revealing that such devotion to him may in fact cost us, cost us our very own physical welfare. It may be anything from the loss of a job, to the loss of property, even to the loss of our very lives in this world. Church history, as we know, is chock full of such examples. In the early church, Christians were tortured, beaten, and martyred for their faith in Christ. During the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, in England alone, there were nearly 300 Christians who were hunted down, captured, and burned at the stake under the direct orders of Queen Mary Tudor, who got the nickname Bloody Mary for this very thing. 
during the 17th century, you had the Scottish Covenanters who were beaten and burned for their faith in Christ. And during the 18th century, at the height of the evangelical awakening in Great Britain, which that work of God was saving all of England from a revolution that, that, would, have been, that would have been something in amazement compared to the French Revolution. Even secular historians today admit that. The evangelical awakening in Great Britain in the 18th century saved England from coming revolution. But at the height of that, at the height of that work of God, men like George Whitfield and John Wesley were both beaten within an inch of their life by the mobs, as they were called, who sought to silence these gospel evangelists permanently. By each of these examples and so many more that could be cited even in our own times, we have to come to terms with the fact that the world can be given over to acting out their venomous hatred against Christ on his people. A hatred that in some cases will literally cause bodily harm to be inflicted on believers in Christ. But from verbal insults to physical abuse, the last form of persecution that Jesus mentions as the way in which the world will afflict his followers is by malicious slander. Malicious slander. Again, reading verse 11, Blessed are you when others utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. What is the difference between verbal insults and malicious slander? You need to understand this. The first kind of communication, that is verbal insults, is what is said to our face. Whereas the second kind of communication is said behind our backs for the purpose of maligning our character and thus ruining our reputation. Thus the scribes and Pharisees sought to ruin Jesus' reputation by spreading vicious lies that he was a glutton, a drunkard, and... This was a favorite of theirs. He was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, now, what were they saying by that? Well, what that was saying in effect is that Jesus actually participated in the sins and wickedness of these outcasts in Jewish society. But of course, all of this was nothing but slander. Yet for us as Christians, we need to take note that, listen, that if the sinless Son of God was slandered like this, how much more should we expect the same treatment? Sadly, though, some of the worst slander against faithful Christians comes not from the pagans of the world, but from people within the visible church who are religious but not regenerated. There have always been those people through the history of the church who have despised and lied against God's word, God's man, God's people. Though they have postured themselves as being at the very head of all religious ceremony and ritual. 
They are elders and deacons, Sunday school teachers, and in many churches, choir directors, whatever that is. I've seen many demons in choir directors. But when faced with the faithful preaching of God's word and the piety of God's people, these religious hypocrites will seek to undermine this, this faithfulness to Christ by spreading the worst possible lies they can so as to destroy the integrity of God's servants and their ministries. So here is the reality of persecution. It may come in the form of verbal insults, physical abuse, or malicious slander. But no matter how it shows up, Jesus wants us to understand that it will come. It will come because this is the mark of his people in a fallen, sinful world. Persecution is the reality for the believer in Christ. But from this reality, let's move on to consider next the reason. The reason for persecution. Now, to begin with, under this point, let's classify, we need to really classify some things which, which may bring persecution upon us, but would not qualify as Christian persecution. We need to be really clear about this. Notice that here in verse 10, our Lord does not say, for instance, blessed are those who are persecuted because they're objectionable or disagreeable or argumentative. We may be persecuted for these things, but this is not what Christ identifies as marking his people for being blessed. Moreover, we do not see Jesus say, blessed are those who are persecuted for being difficult as Christians. Or blessed are those who are being persecuted for their lack of wisdom and apparent foolishness in what they regard as being their testimony. No, these things, while potentially true of us, do not signify God's blessing upon us in the matter of persecution. Furthermore, we must not think that Christian persecution has anything to do with being fanatical or overzealous for a doctrine, a cause, or a political platform. Here again, we may suffer persecution as Christians for such things as this, but this is not the kind of persecution our Lord is describing as that which qualifies being blessed as his people. Fanning this fact out even more, Martin Lloyd-Jones observed, we can bring endless suffering upon ourselves. We can create difficulties for ourselves which are quite unnecessary because we have some rather foolish notion of witnessing and testifying or because in a spirit of self-righteousness we really do call it down on our own heads. We are often so foolish in these matters. We are slow to realize the difference between prejudice and principle and we are so slow to understand the difference between being offensive in a natural sense because of our particular makeup and temperament 
and causing offense because we are righteous. So as we start to think about why we would be persecuted as Christians, let's be very clear as to what Jesus gives as the biblical reason for enduring such affliction in the manner that truly honors God. Looking back at our text in verses 10 and 11, notice the real reason for Christian persecution. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, and then blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and undercall all kinds of evil against you falsely, and then look at the last three words, on my account. So let's get that clear. For righteousness' sake and on my account. That's the reason. For righteousness' sake and on my account. What is true, genuine Christian persecution? It is suffering at the hands of unbelievers because as a Christian, you are identified with Christ manifesting his righteousness by living in obedience to him. This is the reason for Christian persecution. It is when a Christian is living a holy life, a life in conformity to God's righteous standard, when he is pursuing that life, he undergoes the attack and disdain of the world. Remembering again, what I quoted a moment ago, what Paul wrote to Timothy. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Are we clear about this? It is the godly life the world hates. It's not the good life. They don't hate the good life. It's not the, the noble life or the heroic life or even the sacrificial life. No, the world loves that life, applauds it. That's great. People, people of the world win awards for that. No. It is the godly life the world cannot tolerate. They cannot tolerate. And this should not surprise us. The world under the dominion of sin, enslaved to its power, minding only the things of the flesh, despises God, breaks his law, and detests any representation of his likeness. So when the world comes face to face with real godliness, it doesn't call for a celebration. It calls for an execution. This is what the world called for when faced with none other than God incarnate, Jesus Christ the Lord. I want you to think about this. Really, really think of how the world really reacted to Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God made flesh. Here he was in this world without sin. Okay, without sin, holy, humble, gentle, meek. He was perfect love incarnate, perfect compassion, always selflessly serving others, never deceitful, but unceasingly teaching and living out the truth. And yet in the presence of perfect righteousness, 
What did the world do? <laughs> what did they do? They demanded the execution of the Son of God because their sinfulness hated what it was not. Righteous. Holy. And this fact holds just as true today. For every genuine believer and follower of Jesus Christ, as A.W. Pink rightly said, listen to this, the wicked hate God's holy image and those who bear it. They hate his holy truth and those who walk in it. So mark it down, okay? My dear Christian brother and sister, listen to this. Mark this down. If you live openly and unashamedly for the glory of Jesus Christ, loving him above all, obeying him with no rivals, if that is how you live, do not dare imagine that the world will think, you know, they're pretty cool. They're pretty savvy. How sophisticated, how intelligent, how trendy they are. Man, they're worthy of honor. We need to give them an award. No. Oh, no. <laughs> the world will hate you. The world will seek at some level to silence your life because your life is a life in Christ. Since our devotion and obedience to Jesus Christ stands in opposition to everything the world in sin exalts. This is the reason for Christian persecution. What did our Lord say? What did he say of us? He said, you're in the world, but you're not what? You're not of the world. He said, if... if you are of the world, the world would love you because the world loves its own. But you're not of the world. You're not of the world. So the world hates you. The world hates everything about you that is identified with Jesus Christ. That is the reason for persecution. But considering the reason and the reality, let's now look at our final point of study, which is actually the most practical, and that is the response. The response to persecution. Now, how does Jesus expect us to respond when persecuted as his people for righteousness' sake? When assailed and attacked by the world for our faith and obedience to Christ, what should the world see in our conduct? How do we respond to this? Well, going back to our text, but now looking at verse 12, this is what we read. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Hmm, I wasn't expecting that. What is the Christian response to Christian persecution? Christ calls his people to do what? Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. What does that mean? 
The meaning behind both of those terms carry the idea of exceeding happiness that would manifest itself. Listen, here's here's the word picture in the Greek. It'll manifest itself by someone literally leaping and skipping for joy. But what's more is that Jesus employs these verbs in what is called the imperative mood. Hence our Lord is not, he's, listen, he's not suggesting joy and gladness as an optional response here. No, this is a divine mandate. We are being commanded to rejoice and be glad when we suffer persecution as followers of Christ. Now, the fact that Jesus would have have to command us to be joyful when we're persecuted for his sake is clearly indicating how unnatural a response like this really is. If we're maligned and slandered or physically abused for any reason, least of all being a Christian, our most natural reaction is not joy but retaliation. Retaliation. We're not going to turn the other cheek. We're going after them. That's the natural response. We want to even the score. Or maybe even worse. That's the natural response. So when we read that our Lord expects us to leap and skip for joy when the world harasses us for our faith in Christ... Beloved, we have got to feel the weight of how impossible such a response is left to our own strength. Get honest with the text. What you're reading there, you've got to say to yourself, that's impossible. That is impossible. That is humanly impossible. And you're right. It most certainly is. Yes, it is. But you know, this is what Jesus wants us to realize. This is what he wants us to realize. We we can't be joyful in the face of persecution without the grace and power of Christ enabling us to that end. This is a supernatural response. If God is to be glorified by the fruit of our response to persecution... It will have to be through the strength he supplies. And yet it is through his strength working in us where he is most glorified because our joy to persecution will be credited fully as his gift. As his gift. So then we throw ourselves on God's mercy for us in Christ to empower us with exceeding gladness when we suffer persecution. We have to reaffirm what Paul wrote in Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. However, while we trust in Christ for the power to rejoice and be glad when we're persecuted, yet the power Jesus gives us is not without means to help us taste and experience this joy. In other words, our Lord wants us to be ever mindful 
of two big realities that will provoke gladness in our hearts when attacked by the world. Now, what are they? First, Jesus tells us, for your reward in heaven is great. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. Our motive for joy when persecuted is that we have a reward awaiting us in heavenly glory. But what could this reward be? Well, I mean, what is it? Clearly, it is not a reward God is giving us due to our merits. It's not that at all. Our salvation from beginning to end is a gift of God's unmerited favor. So we know that. Rather, the reward is the ultimate expression of God's grace toward all his children, which is the gift of himself. The gift of himself through all eternity. One writer explained it like this. He said, the essence of the reward that we can count on to complete our joy is the fullness of the presence of Jesus experienced in the age to come. The reward is getting Christ. That I may be found in him, Paul wrote to the Philippian church. The reward is getting Christ. Secondly, our Lord goes on to tell us that our joy and persecution should also come from this fact. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You want to be provoked to joy when you're persecuted for your love and obedience to Christ? Well, then remember this. You are in the best possible company as you suffer for Christ. You're in the best possible company. In other words, you're not alone. There's a mighty army of God's faithful saints who have gone before you, bearing on their backs the ridicule and hatred of this world for righteousness' sake. And so our Lord says, rejoice and be glad because you stand among the rank and file of God's faithful prophets, the servants of his word who gave their all for God's glory and the spread of his fame. This is the company you keep. So to be counted among this group is to be counted as a true believer and an obedient servant of Jesus Christ. How then, how then can a Christian not have joy when, when persecuted? Think about it. Their persecution is a mark of their true conversion to Christ. Because they are identified with God's own faithful prophets. Well, in conclusion, not just to our study this morning, but to our entire study of the Beatitudes for these last eight weeks, I want to leave you with two big lessons which not only take in the truth of this immediate passage, but also concerns the truth of all the Beatitudes as a whole here in these first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5. Two lessons that I want you to take home. Number one, the Christian is unlike anyone in their natural state. The Christian is unlike anyone in their natural state. 
man in his natural birth is a product and result of sin. He is born in sin. His nature is sinful. Therefore, he has no desire, no inclination for God and Christ. He has no taste for righteousness and true goodness. His mind is fixed on this world and the love of its values and pursuits in rebellion against God. But a Christian, a true Christian is not a product of natural birth. He is the result of God's grace in Jesus Christ. By God's grace, the Christian is a sinner who has received a new nature in a new birth carried out by the sovereign power of the Holy Spirit. And the fruit of this new birth is a new heart broken and humbled by personal sin, surrendered to God's will, craving after righteousness, merciful to others, devoted to Christ by a superior passion, pursuing God's peace, God's way, and persecuted by the world for this life which strives to love and obey Christ. This is a Christian. This is a Christian who, as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, is not just like everybody else with a slight difference. He is essentially different. He has a different nature. And he is a different man. Beloved, why do you think the word of God so clearly says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is. Notice the present tense of that. He is a new creation. Something is essentially different about you if you have been born again. At the core, something is essentially different. So the Christian is unlike anyone in their natural state. Lesson number two. The Christian life, the Christian life is ruled by righteousness. The Christian life is ruled by righteousness. This means that the Christian life is a life controlled, set apart, and devoted to God's righteous standard. Thus, a Christian is not at peace with sin, but at war with sin. And when he falls into sin, he is broken over his fall because he knows that it was disobedience to God. Furthermore, in his new nature, he has an insatiable, an insatiable appetite for the righteousness of God. This is due to the fact that God's law is written on the Christian's heart and in his mind. He loves God's law, longs to, to obey it faithfully. But this love for the law puts him at odds with a lawless world. Hence, he is persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Yet, despite this persecution, he longs for unbelievers to be at peace with God, even as he himself is through Christ. So he pursues to promote peace to the world by proclaiming the gospel of peace, which is man's only hope to be set in a right standing before God. But of course, in the light of these two lessons, there's a question that I need to raise. A question at the end of this entire eight-week study. Does this person portrayed in the Beatitudes, does this person describe you? Is this who you are, really? Are you humble and broken? Over your own sin? 
Are, are you yielded in submission to God's will and design for your life? Do you long to live a life pleasing to God? Ruled by his righteous standard? Are you merciful to others in both their physical and spiritual suffering? Is your heart fixed on a passion for Christ that dominates all other passions in your life? Are you a peacemaker, promoting the gospel of peace to the world and seeking to make peace with those with whom you may be divided? And finally, if all these things are true of you, then can you say that your life is marked by persecution for the sake of Christ? Do you know, now listen closely to this, do you know the scorn of this world because of your faith in Christ? Do you know that? Do you know that personally? Do you know that experientially? You see, this last question that I'm belaboring is really the most crucial of all the questions that I have just raised. If you have never experienced persecution by the world because of your faith and obedience to Christ, then one of two things is true of you. And you need to listen very closely to me. One of two things is true of you. Either you have compromised your witness for Christ so much, so much that the world just yawns with indifference when you pass by because you look and sound so much like them. That is a real possibility. If you don't believe me, just read 1 Corinthians. That is a real possibility. And if that is true of you, then let me say first and foremost, shame on you. Shame, shame, shame. You need to repent, and you need to, listen, here's what you need to repent of. You need to repent of your worldliness and renew your love for Christ that will, listen, that will openly invite the world's abuse. However, it could be, it really could be that you're just simply not a Christian. You're, you're just not born again. The world doesn't hate you because you're of the world. And you do not belong to Christ. And if this is the case with you, then I urge you and I plead with you, get right with God today. Turn to Christ, trust him for salvation, for your salvation. Flee from your sinful life, embrace a new life in Jesus Christ by God's grace. Understand this, understand this. Persecution by the world because you're a Christian is a very temporary scab 
compared to suffering for all eternity in hell. Really. May God have mercy on you. May he awaken you today to the true state of your soul. If the word of God finds you out right now as an unbeliever, then I urge you to trust God's promise. Trust his promise that whoever calls on Jesus Christ in faith will be saved. That is what God promises. And God cannot lie. So trust him today. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, we thank you for such sober and somber truth that has searched us all today. And if any of us, Lord, are found wanting, if your word has so discovered any of us here as being one without Christ, then Father, we plead with you now earnestly that you will mercifully save that one, that you will draw him or her effectually to Christ Jesus our Lord, that you will call, call that one out of darkness into your marvelous light that they too may be truly and for all eternity identified in union with Christ, but identified with him in such a manner and way that at this time and in this place, their life in Christ invites the abuse of the world, the intolerance of the world that hates righteousness. And yet, Lord, we know as we have heard this morning from your word that such persecution is for the sake and on account of Christ Jesus our Lord and thus we have great reason, profound reason to rejoice and be glad. And blessed Father, I do pray this morning that if there are any brothers and sisters in Christ here today who are guilty of compromising their witness for Christ because of their worldliness, Lord, will you work in the hearts of these saints that have drifted so far from you that you'll call them back, Lord, that you will work in them the grace of repentance. The grace of repentance that will renew their hatred of all known sin in their life. And they will thereby flee, flee from their worldliness and fly to Christ again, renewed and revived by your power, Lord, to live 
in faithful obedience to the Lord Jesus. For these matters, for these holy things, Father, we lift up before your throne of grace, petitioning you in the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.